Well, this is Current Yield, Grant's interest rate observer of the air. And I am Jim Grant, welcoming you. And uh, let's see, we'll take attendance. Yes, here is Eric Whitehead to my left at the control panel. Eric, among other things, is uh, chief administrative officer of the uh, imminent Grant's Interest Rate Observer Conference. We're having it this year in lieu of the boat show at the Javits Center. It's bigger than, I think it's bigger than the Astrodome, right? I think it's bigger than three states of Delaware is the word I get. Yes. Yeah, okay, that's on Tuesday. And uh, and calling in from Borough of Brooklyn is the great deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz. Evan, good morning. Morning. Uh, Evan. Oh, okay. And, uh, and joining us from afar, I think, uh, from that memory serves from the state of Connecticut, is, um, was Nancy Davis, who was the progenitor of the uh, interest rate, volatility, and inflation hedge ETF, the ticker being IVOL on the big board. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning. Well, before um, getting into the business of uh, the yield curve and the steepness or flatness thereof and the money to be made uh, by intelligent wagering on the shape of the curve, I would like to say a few words about Ludwig von Beethoven. I'm not sure about uh, you, Eric, but uh, I am a flutter uh, with the uh, excitement coming up on the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth. That's going to be in December. And, you know, one of the annoying things about this stupid pandemic is the cancellation of almost everything that one had hoped to see and do on the calendar year 2020. For example, there's the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth. That was to have been in December. We don't know the date he was born, but I think he was baptized in September, uh, December 17th. But in the service of anticipating the events that won't be held, I wish to lay down a suggestion uh, for the listeners to uh, current yield. And this has, uh, eh, admittedly, little to do with interest rates. But here it is. What you want to do is you want to Google or go on YouTube and uh, YouTube. Is it YouTube a verb to YouTube? Yeah, sure, it must be. Okay, to YouTube, the name uh, David Formisano, F-O-R-M-I-S-A-N-O, David Formisano is the name. And he's only the greatest flute player, says Sir James Galway. Only the greatest flute player. And what you do is you YouTube David Formisano Eroica as an E-R-O-I-C-A. It's Beethoven's third symphony. Just those, just those words. David Formisano Eroica Symphony. And you will hear 28 seconds of the most fabulous music you've ever heard in your life. I'm just saying. This is a little bit obsessive of me. I know, I know. I've listened to this thing, this 28-second clip. I've listened to it time and again. And it is uh, kind of a miracle. All right, so we can't all agree, can we, Eric, on politics or on vacation destinations? No, we can't. No. We can't all agree whether we're bullish or bearish. Is that correct, Evan? I think that's fair. Yeah, a little snappier with these answers, Evan. Nancy, some of us can't agree whether the curve is going to flatten or steepen. Is that not correct? Absolutely. Right. But, ladies and gentlemen, we can agree on some things. We can agree that this December, the 250th anniversary birth month of Ludwig von Beethoven, we can forget all that stuff and just get into it a little bit, right? All right. So, um, Nancy, once again, welcome to the Grants Podcast. And tell us, tell the listeners who perhaps were not reading uh, the issue of Grants dated May 17th, 2019, which celebrated the inaugural trading day of the IVOL ETF. Tell us what you do for a living. Well, Grant's Interest Rate Observer was one of the first publications to pick up, so I you know, thank you for being so cutting edge and innovative. Um, we are a inflation-protected government bond fund. Uh, the majority of the portfolio is treasuries with inflation protection tips, but then we add on an enhancement because we want to have a tip 
plus portfolio. The reason we do that is that we think having all of your, you know, chips or eggs, maybe that would be a better tips. analogy. All the tips. In the, yeah, tips are right. <laughs> tips, uh, uh, all your eggs in the CPI basket might not be the most accurate measure. So we take tips and then we enhance it with asymmetric options on inflation expectations as measured by the rates market, whereas the CPI basket is just set by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So it's just another way of gaining a more market-based measure of inflation and inflation expectations. So what what is the owner of the Ivol ETF? What is he or she rooting for? What makes this thing go up? Well, we are long tips. That's the bulk of the portfolio. So those are treasuries with inflation protection. Right. So we want real yields lower with uh, with the bond component, like all bonds. Um, but we also, with the options, are agnostic to uh, the options don't care about the level of interest rate. We just want the spread between short and long dated rates to widen. And we don't really care how that happens, whether it's negative rate expectations in the front end or a normalization of inflation expectations on the long end of the curve as measured by the 10-year point. But that widening is what benefits the addition to a to regular TIPS portfolio. Well, how have you done so far, Nancy? We've done well. I've been, uh, there's been no interest rate volatility. This fund, since it buys options, is long interest rate vol. Interest rate vol is actually lower than it was when we, uh, when you first wrote up iVol the week that it listed in May 2019. It's actually lower. So interest rate vol has been kind of a yawn. Uh, but the fund is up through September 30th, almost 15% since it listed on May 14th, 2019. And year to date, up over 11%. It's like a fang. It's like a, it's, this is like a fang. (laughs) It's a fang for inflation, maybe. (laughs) Um, But the interesting thing is there's been no inflation. So it just shows how it is an inflation protected fund, but there are a lot of other ways to win with the strategy. You don't necessarily need there to be inflation to make money. Well, you know, Evan, you, you sent me, you pointed out to me, um, yesterday it was a it's an extraordinary uh, statement by Randall Quarles, who is, the, uh, as you know, the Fed chair for supervision, vice chair for supervision. And, uh, yeah, could I read that right now? Yeah, I've, I've read it myself two or three times, but you, you, if, if I hear from you, I might believe it. I still don't believe it myself, but you go ahead. Yeah, it says, and I'm going to quote him, it may be that there is a simple macro fact that the Treasury market being so much larger than it was even a few years ago, much larger than it was a decade ago, and now really much larger than it was even a few years ago, that the sheer volume there may have outpaced the ability of the private market infrastructure to support stress of any sort out there. Corals is basically implying that the Fed is going to be in the market and the market needs the Fed, and the Fed will be intervening in prices um, going forward pretty much indefinitely. Yeah. Well, that, you know, Nancy, that seems to me to speak to a couple of things. One, not so helpful for a fund that would rather have more volatility than less, but uh, something else that might be very helpful indeed, which is perhaps an unmanageable uh, supply situation uh, on the longer end, maybe, uh, that would force up yields owing to uh, a relative overabundance of supply in relation to demand. Is that how one might read this without being too, you know, we have to be careful not to be hopeful in this business. We are clinically analytical. But what do you think? Well, I definitely think it's priced into the market. Um, the market is, I'd say, at max 
uh, peak central bank confidence that the Fed is going to be able to control the bond market, the treasury market. Um, you can see that with the measures of interest rate volatility in uh in September, so just a few weeks ago, we hit a lifetime history of financial market lows and interest rate volatility. And so I think eyeball is a good showing of we don't need there to be interest rate volatility. Um, it's just the level of interest rate volatility means that we can get more bang for our buck. It just means the protection that we add uh, into the eyeball ETF um, to potentially protect against inflation or interest rate volatility or changes in the yield curve is just very cheaply priced. Um, it's actually spectacular considering equity volatility, precious metal volatility, FX volatility, pretty much all other volatilities are trading near their percentile highs given the shock that we had uh, in March uh, with the pandemic. So even though credit markets, equity markets, other markets have recovered in price terms, their volatility levels are still elevated. Whereas the rates market, everybody believes, you know, Randall, and that there is going to be no volatility uh, in the bond market. And uh, I think that's great for us. Is there a risk that the treasury market becomes a little bit like the Japanese government bond market? The Japanese central bank has been much more aggressive in buying uh, JGBs, and there's whole days where, like, benchmark uh, JGBs don't trade. Um, it seems like the market there has kind of broken down, and there's not as much price discovery, not as much volatility, not as much a verve. I definitely agree. I think um, the treasury market is, uh, we do obviously have treasuries within the eyeball fund, but the options that we own are actually OTC on the swaps curve. And we specifically like that because then we get outside the treasury market and the swaps market is a bigger, more global market where it is harder for uh, for the Fed to control uh, swaps. And we saw that you know, even uh, last fall when the repo market imploded, uh, you know, that was when Brainerd had laid out uh, the proposal for yield curve control on the front end, which is what Australia, the RBA, actually implemented that in March uh, 2020 to pin the front end of the curve. So I definitely think uh, you have to look outside of just the Treasury markets and look at the broader rate market, which includes all the um, OTC bops options and curve markets. Nancy, tell us a little bit about uh, the OTC swaps market. It's a very exotic portion of the interest rate world for many people. You know, what, uh, what's it about? Well, it's a more market-based measure of inflation expectations. Um, that's what we see the rates market giving you. It's not just putting all your eggs in the calculation from the Bureau of Labor Statistics on what the CPI basket is. Most people, when they talk about inflation expectations, they're talking about the break-even market, which is still all linked to CPI. So we are really excited about innovating in the ETF world with the Eyeball product and providing access to the OTC rates market, which is actually a huge market. It's, um, by some measures, five times bigger than the U.S. stock market, but most people just have stocks and bonds in their portfolio, which I always find a little peculiar, especially given, you know, I think the stat is that 80% of global wealth is held in real estate, and most professional real estate investors all hedge in the rates market, but most regular people don't. But, but what, do you, what do you own when you own this uh, most intangible thing called an OTC swap? If you take delivery of it, can you see it? Just tell us what it is. So I doesn't actually have swaps. It has
has options, um, and then we own options on the difference between two swap rates. So it's quite unusual. It's actually, um, if you go to our Eyeball ETF website and look at our fact sheet, you'll see that our options are actually taxed as ordinary assets, not capital assets. Most funds that use derivatives of any kind like swaps or futures or index options, those are capital assets. Ours are actually ordinary assets. So it is quite different than, than most, uh, most traditional fixed income funds. Yeah, right. So you, what we own, we eyeball people if we own eyeball. What one owns is an option on this most uh, uh, this, uh, nuanced and uh, kind of a very, very exotic thing. But anyway, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that someone is on top of this market that's how many, five times bigger than the stock market? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a massive. Um, there's actually a pie chart of it on the second page of our fact sheet um, that just shows yeah. which which is a visualization of how big the OTC rates market is. Because think about it, every corporate, every insurance company, the whole world, especially for balance sheet efficiency, uses swaps for the most part. So while the Fed might have their thumb on the treasury market, we think using the yield curve as measured by swaps is actually a better measure of inflation expectations because that takes it away. We have obviously CPI within the treasuries that we have, but then we enhance that by having the market's measure of inflation right. expectations. And let me, maybe just to, one way I describe it to investors that I think has been helpful is like, you know, bank CDs. If you go to a CD and open a, a CD at a bank, you know, policy rates are so close zero, you get paid basically nothing for a three-month or one-year or two-year CD because the market does believe the Fed, and we do think rates will be on hold for a long time. But if you lock up your money for 10 years, you say, all right, how about a a 10-year CD? What else will I get paid? It's half a percent. Currently, the the 210 yield curve in the swap format is 54 basis points. And that, to us, is what is really attractively priced because that's the market expectations for inflation in the future. That particular swap, the two to 10 year swap was even tighter, was it not when you started? It was like 21 basis points, I think. It was about 15. Yeah, you have a great memory. It was right around there. So it really, you know, going back to Eyeball's performance, we've, you know, the funds up, you know, call it 15% since we listed it, but not much has happened. Right. The, well, you know, the, the, you know, the OTC rates market is nearly 200 trillion or more or less, right? Yeah, it's, it's okay, huge. and and the and the treasury more the tradable treasury market is less than twenty now, right? With the I think the gross debt evidence is like twenty seven, and the uh, portion um, in the hands of the public is what uh, eighteen twenty? I don't know. So this thing, this this recondite swaps market, is bigger than all outdoors. And uh, Nancy, so the intriguing thing about it is that, uh, the, as you say, the Fed's thumb is only so big. The fund, the Fed's thumb is certainly on the scales of the relatively piddling treasury market, but this $200 trillion thing is more or less off leash. And give us a sense, Nancy, if you would please, the difference in how the OTC swap market is, is discounting the future versus as, as expressed in its yield curve compared to how the treasury market controlled by the Fed is expressing the future via its yield curve. Absolutely. So 
know, most people, when they talk about inflation expectations, they're talking about the break-even market, which is the difference between nominal treasuries with no inflation protection and TIPS, the treasuries with inflation protection. But again, it all goes back to that CPI basket, which is set from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And, you know, a third of CPI is measured by shelter. Um, Powell actually at the last Fed meeting in September literally called out the CPI basket. And I am paraphrasing his quote, but he basically said, we don't want to hurt Americans who are out of work and, you know, are struggling during the pandemic. And we want to be mindful of higher prices for essential items such as food, gasoline, shelter, that might create a burden to families. He's literally calling out the CPI basket, but then he adds and he reiterated that inflation expectations are what matter in driving actual inflation. And so we see Eyeball as providing access for everybody to more market-based measure of inflation expectations away from just CPI alone. Evan, before I interrupted you, what we got to ask? Oh, no, yeah, you guys actually covered what I wanted to ask. Uh, Nancy, tell, riddle me this. So, um, you know, Treasury market, CPI measured interest rates. Uh, uh, let me start again. So the Treasury market volatility is as sleepy as it has been in living memory, right? Right. So is it possible that this, let us say that the volatility in the Treasury market is suppressed, we'll say that. Now, is it possible that because the Fed can suppress volatility only to a degree, that the suppression is, is informing a much higher level of volatility in markets outside interest rates. That is, the, the, the higher measure of vol in, in gold and stocks and what have you is partially a consequence of the suppression of volatility of interest rates. It's completely possible, Jim. I mean, people might uh, be believing the Fed selling volatility in the rates market to fund you know, yield enhancement and other taking more risk also in credit and things with spread, because I think at the end of the day, people need to have um, income. And with government bond yields so low or negative around the world that many investors have been pushed out into um, more, I'd say, uh, things with credit spread risk, which is similar beta to equities, because when equities sell off, credit spreads tend to widen. So, and there are all sorts of, you know, also people have been giving up liquidity to add more esoteric private credit, direct lending, other things that have less liquidity. And so I think it's a, definitely a challenging time. But I do think, you know, the U.S. yield curve, as measured by uh, the swaps market, back in 2013, the market measure of that inflation expectation was around 250 basis points. So 2.5%, to use that analogy, you go to the bank and policy rates were still very near zero at that point because we were coming out of the Greek and European debt crisis. You know, it was just normal that if you went to a bank, you got paid, you know, two to two and a half percent to lock up your money for 10 years. Currently, you know, the inflation swap market, the 10-year inflation swap right now is 1.975. The break-even for the 10-year uh, uh, using the CPI and regular tips is 1.71. So that seems pretty fairly priced in my mind, whereas the yield curve at 54 basis points seems like a better value to me to express a more market-based measure of inflation expectations. All right. Well, um, Evan, I'm not sure about uh, 
other people, but I know where you, are, you and I are going to be on Tuesday. I know where Eric's going to be, and Nancy, you are certainly welcome as well. We're going to be at the Javits Center. And we will hear uh, Jim Chanos and Bruce Flatt and the former governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King. We'll hear Stephanie Kelton, the doyen of modern monetary theory. We'll hear Dylan Grice uh, on inflation trades and the crypto complex. We'll hear Monica Erickson on investment grade corporate credit and Cy Jacobs on uh, whatever happened to bank failures. Cy will inquire and then answer. Joe Lawler, a taxonomy of COVID-19 shorts. And uh, finally, uh, triumphantly, John Paulson, who once uh, owned the GDP of about uh, 16 countries, thanks to his most timely 2007 and 8 short of mortgage derivatives. We'll hear him speak to gold coming to a theater near you. That's his topic. So uh, this is, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's this, this most singular event in the 2020 Manhattan calendar, which is live people in one place, to be sure, distanced. Eric, how many square miles per customer in this, uh, in this hall? The six or eight, right? Six, six square six miles square per, miles per, per yeah. person, yes. It seems entirely sensible. Nancy, wouldn't that put your mind at ease if, if, uh, if your grown children say we're going to attend this and they said, we would like your permission for us to go to a live event. And one's first reaction might be, well, that's, that sounds awfully tricky in the year 2020. When they say six square miles per customer, I think that you are going to say yes, no? Yeah, no, I'm also, my kids are uh, in their teen years and they're not very high risk. So it's more my concern is my parents and, you know, the, the older folks in our in our family. But absolutely, I think, you know, with appropriate social distancing, I think the Contrarian Ball is definitely a, the event of 2020. Excellent. Um, and also a celebration of Beethoven's birthday. <laughs> Right. Now, Nancy, have we told you recently how much we want you back on the Grants Interest Rate Observer podcast? This is a fabulous speech you just gave. So, um, Oh, thank you. Yeah, and more or less unrehearsed as well. It's a spontaneous expression of enthusiasm for this event. And I am grateful. Evan's grateful. And, uh, and Eric is certainly grateful. So thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, I, um, I think we've covered the thing. We've, we've covered uh, interest rates and uh, interest rate volatility, which is uh, slumbering over there in the corner. Soon to awaken, though, perhaps, Nancy, soon to awaken. And we have looked at the yield curve. We have looked at the uh, evidently, if not unmanageable, certainly a little awkward growing supply of treasuries. Evan, any other items left on the agenda? Yeah, there's one last thing I'd love to ask Nancy, and it touches on something you just said a second ago. Before you founded Quadratic Capital, you were um, the head of credit derivatives and OTC trading for Goldman Sachs' prop trading group. Right now, you said that as the Fed has pushed down treasury rates, people in the search for yield have gone off to equities and high-yield bonds. High-yield bonds, for instance, have a credit spread of 501 basis points over treasuries, below their long-term average of like 555 basis and below the almost 1,100 basis points they reached in March. I'd love to kind of get your sense of the risk-reward that people are taking when they buy kind of these sub investment grade bonds and kind of what it means for the uh, investment market? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, most people want their fixed income portfolio to help provide something that is not correlated to their equity risk. They want when equities sell off um, that the fixed income side of their portfolio performs well. And I think generally we can't assume that these very tight credit spreads are going to stay because likely we will have some defaults tick higher. So I think it's a great opportunity for investors to look at diversifying away from 
credit spread products, and that's everything from, you know, floating rate notes, which are mostly uh, bank credit spread. And yes, the coupon resets higher with interest rates, but it's only the coupon. It's mostly credit risk. Um, also uh, pivoting away from things like high yield and investment grade, where you're not really compensated for the potential, you know, second wave of, you know, casualties, which will be default from the pandemic, because this has been a, a tremendous economic shock and credit spreads are priced um, almost for perfection in my point. And then I think also um, many investors who are sitting in passive fixed income exposures, like for instance, the Barclays Ag Index which is a passive index that many investors use to have diversified fixed income portfolio exposure. Uh, the Barclays Ag has no inflation protection in it at all. It used to be the Lehman Ag, and that was created before the U.S. Treasury created the inflation-protected uh, bond market in the late 90s. So the Ag has just nominal treasuries. A third of the Ag has, you know, the credit spread risk, which is about 32%. Which, to your point, Eric, it's you know, kind of a similar beta to when equities sell off, credit spreads tend to widen. So it might not provide the diversification. And then also, um, I think another thing that we have to remember is the financial crisis of 2008. If we learned one thing in the financial crisis... We didn't. It's that we didn't. We learned nothing. <laughs> we, did. we learned nothing. Exactly. I, I feel like I'm I'm always, you know, I've all, we, we're very transparent in our name, right? It's called the quadratic interest rate volatility an inflation hedge, but people see the word volatility and they get scared. But mortgages, mortgages are short volatility. And I think most people have just don't remember at all from the financial crisis that mortgages mathematically will lose in price terms, just like the, the same inverse relationship to interest rates, because mortgages, when you own a mortgage, you are short an option to the homeowner and the homeowner can prepay whenever they want. And they have lots of fancy terms to describe that short volatility exposure. But I don't think most investors realize that when they sit with, you know, passive exposure in the Barclays Ag or something linked to the Barclays Ag, that they're actually short volatility. I think it's really important, especially given how low interest rate volatility is, that people try to compensate for that and reduce the short vol risk. Um, and that's where I think Ival is a nice completion portfolio because it gives you inflation, inflation expectations, and a long volatility exposure that can compensate for the shortfall in mortgages. Nessie, what, uh, what does a, the manager of Ival do all day long? I mean, it seems to me that, that uh, I, I imagine one's life might be a little like that of a farmer. You plant a seed, that is, you set your portfolio, and then you pray for rain or you worry about not enough sunshine. But uh, what is the day-to-day -day management routine of uh, the person, I guess that would be you, who heads this operation? Is it, is it a constant resetting of things? Is it uh, swapping one set of, uh, of yield curve options or OTC options out for another? What's, you know, what, what, is, what, what do you do between nine and five, Nancy Davis? <laughs> well, definitely, I'm all, um, my job is to focus on the Greek risk and the portfolio, and that's why people hire us as an access product to the OTC markets. 
as well as our expertise for managing the Greek exposure that exists. But we set up the fund, I think, in a very clever way because it is an inflation-protected bond fund, and we do want to be focused on real return. So we actually use a passive tip index for our bond exposure, and we do that in ETF format to be very tax-efficient and real return-focused for our investors. So since we use um, another ETF, we actually rebate investors that acquired fund fee, but our bond trading, um, for the most part, is done in kind, which means if we were trading the trips directly, we would be generating potentially short-term capital gains whenever we trade them for the fund level. And so I think this is a very efficient way to focus on real return and also give investors a, a more, uh, it's a very liquid fund because that, that treasury fund that we use is $12 billion. It's the same index that uh, TIP, the, the iShares BlackRock product, is linked to the same uh, treasury index. And that also has another, call it $20 billion in it. So there's a ton of liquidity in that specific index. And I think it makes it very efficient for our investors from a real return basis as well as from a liquidity point of view. All right. Nancy, thank you. We will talk again uh, perhaps after Beethoven's birthday. Evan, I'll see you Tuesday (laughs) at the Javits Center. And Eric, you want to see you there too? Yes. Yes. Excellent. Okay, good. So ladies and gentlemen, we'll see, I hope, many of you there at, uh, what's the address, Eric? This is uh, way over near New Jersey, is it? 11th Avenue and and 34th Street. Yeah, 34th Street. Well, actually, it's not anywhere close. You can cross a river to get to New Jersey, so it's in Manhattan. So we'll see you on Tuesday. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Nancy Davis, thank you. Best of continued luck to you with this with this fang of a bond fund. And uh, <laughs> listeners, we'll talk again soon. Thank you for being a part of uh, Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air.